uh, back to the Gospel of Mark this morning. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're going to be going uh, through this parable of Jesus called the parable of the tenants. Uh, this is one of those parables that has um, what you might call a synoptic echo. And, and, and what I mean by that is simply that this parable actually appears in all three of the synoptic Gospels. That's, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, so as, as we make our way, as we have been making our way through this series on the parables of Jesus, one of the things that hopefully, that I really hope that you've noticed is that we're taking these parables at, at face value. Uh, we're, we're, looking at that, we're looking at them within their context, and we're looking at them in the, in the context of the book. Uh, we're looking at them in the context of the entirety of Scripture. We're looking at them in the cultural context in which the original hearers would have heard them. Uh, we have worked uh, from an expressed desire to hear and understand these parables in the same way in which the original audience would have, would have heard and understood these parables. Uh, the, and this one's no different. Uh, this one's no different. So let's go. Let's, uh, would you stand with me? And let's hear the word of the Lord in Mark 12. This is Mark 12, uh, starting with verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. God, we don't take it for granted. Uh, we don't take for granted the fact that we have uh, breath in our lungs, that we have beating hearts in our chest, and that you, have, that you have set this time aside for us that we might come together and worship, that we might come together to hear from you. And so that's what I really pray happens now. I pray that in, that in spite of me, you would move, uh, that you would speak, that we might hear, that you would, that you would shout. If, if that need be, uh, that we might draw near to you today. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please be seated. If you consider the timeline, like the actual timeline of the parable, and, and where it's found just within the Gospel of Mark, uh, we would see that Jesus has, at this point, like, like at this point in his ministry, that he has been rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth, that he has 
uh, fed 5,000 people. Remember with, with, uh, with I heard it called uh, two fish sandwiches and an extra piece of bread one time. That was my favorite way of describing that. Five loaves, two fishes, okay? That he fed 5,000 people with that. Uh, that he walked on water. In chapter 8, he healed a blind man. He, he, he restored a man's sight uh, by, by using his own spit. And I, I just love that story because I can't imagine what everybody there watching would have thought was happening there. It seems like that would have been offensive to spit on a blind man. But he did it, and it worked. Uh, back in Mark 8, you would find him feeding another 4,000 people. And then in Mark 9, you would, you would see his transfiguration. And just in the chapter before this, in in chapter 11, we would see his triumphal entry. We see him riding into Jerusalem on a a donkey. It says on a colt, okay, the foal of a donkey. These are not small moments. These are not small little insignificant records of a week in the life or a year in the life of some, some Judean teacher, okay? These are monumental moments in the life of Jesus himself that have led up to this moment that we're looking at today. And I didn't even mention that in chapter 11, we see Mark's account of the cleansing of the temple. That's where, where Jesus uh, rode into the temple, overturned the tables, right? Flipped over their chairs, told them to get out of here. You're making my father's house a den of robbers. What we would know is that if we saw that happening in, in chapter 11, we would know that this parable right now is actually taking place on the same steps just the next day of that same temple. This parable isn't happening any more than any of the other ones in a vacuum. He's not just randomly telling this story. He is here intentionally right now telling this parable to those people. And so what we should know is that the audience sitting there, listening, standing around, they would have been nervous. Things didn't go so well yesterday when Jesus showed up at the temple. It got messy And so here they are now in the same place. The leaders know this. They know this because they are nervous themselves. The Passover is approaching, all right? That that highest of their ceremonies is coming. The leaders are nervous. They've been embarrassed by this man just the day before. But here he is, not shying away. He's not running and hiding. He posts up in that same place, that same temple, and it's within that context that he tells this parable to those who can hear. So let's, let's take just a minute here and break the parable down a little bit, and then we'll, then we'll talk. He, he says, a man planted a vineyard, and then he says that, that the man put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Uh, there have been periods of time that, um, in, in, in church history where we have tend to hyper-spiritualize parables where we want to make each element in them have some very, very deep meaning. And so there were, if, if you were to follow the early church fathers and kind of read through them, um, what they would tell you is that the, they would view the fence as the, as the law of God. They would view the tower as the temple of God. They would, they would view the wine press as the altar. And now, now, we're not going to do that. And we're not, in fact, I don't know why I told you that. Just forget that, okay? That's, that's bad theology from way back, okay? Because it's trying to hyper-spiritualize something that Jesus is just trying to tell simply, all right? We're, we are not going to overreach. What we're going to do is be very practical here. We're going to be very fundamental to this. And, and, and just begin by saying that vineyards do not occur uh, randomly. Like a vineyard, just, it just doesn't happen. A vineyard doesn't spring up out of nowhere. Okay, down at, down at the lake at our house, um, we have blackberries. Uh, they grow up just along the shore. 
uh, and, and they, they come up in the early summer. Uh, they ripen very, very quickly, and then uh, within about a weekend, they're gone because once the kids spot them and then, you know, the competition with the geese, um, that's, they're, they're gone in about a weekend. Now, now, here's the thing. We did not plant them. We didn't plant them, and the sad and somewhat disgusting reality is that it was actually the geese who brought them to us. Um, you, you see, we don't have a vineyard. Like, that's not a vineyard. Nobody would consider that a vineyard. Nobody stumbles upon a random cluster of, of fruit or, or something out in the woods or down by the lake and thinks, oh, a vineyard. That's, that, that never is how we would think of it. But if you and I were to get on a plane and, and we were to fly to the West Coast and, 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 and get in a car and drive up into the mountains of, of Sonoma and we, would, and we would look. And if anybody wants to take that trip, you just let me know. I'm, I would love for you to take me with you. That would be great. Uh, my wife too. We'll all go. It'll be great. We're, we're, if you were to drive up there, you would see rows and rows. You would see vineyard after vineyard that planted there, intentionally planted there. You see, that's the point. The vineyard is intentional. And that's the case here. Right from the start, Jesus is making it clear with all the implications that are bound up in that, in that concept, just in that word, vineyard, that this is something that was planted. Now, let's assume, though, that somebody in the crowd could have possibly missed that implication. Perhaps they were new to the area. They weren't, they weren't aware of the olive vineyards that were so prominent in and around central Palestine. Jesus tells us that not only was the vineyard planted, but the man put a fence around it, right? And so now the crowd is definitely beginning to understand, okay, this is not, not only is it intentional, but there's something of inherent value to it because you only put fences around things that you want to protect. You never put a fence just for the sake of it. I hope not. That would be silly, right? You see, the fence now sets the vineyard apart, not just from nothing. It doesn't set it apart from abstraction. It doesn't set it apart from, from, from just the wilderness. It sets it apart actually from, well, from other vineyards. This is how it would have worked. What the fence does is sets this vineyard apart from other vineyards. And next we see that a pit was constructed for the wine press. So now the vineyard not only exists, it is not only set apart, but, but it's clearly set apart for a specific purpose. The fruit was meant for something. What was being produced by the vineyard was, was meant for something. It had an end goal in mind. It was, it was meant to become wine. And finally, still in verse 1, this is still just in verse 1, we see that the man built a tower in the midst of the vineyard. There were several possibilities for that. The most prevailing being that the man is setting it up to be guarded. That the fence is there as sort of an impersonal guard. And yet here we're going to build a watchtower so that we can keep active guard. That, that, that men might take active guard in protecting the harvest. There's a lot going on there in verse 1. Now, one of my favorite proofs for the existence of God. And, and you can... There, I love Thomas Aquinas' five ways. If you're ever interested in just kind of looking at those, they're, they're great. One of his is called um, the teleological argument, okay? Uh, and and that, what that is is the argument from design or, or what has become known as the intelligent design argument. And, and this was the fifth of Thomas, Thomas Aquinas' ways or proofs for the existence of God. 
Uh, Jesus is sort of constructing a framework here that matches that, okay? It's, it's like the, the watchmaker analogy. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, but the thought that goes that nobody uh, just walking around outside, if I'm just walking down the sidewalk or if I'm on Mars and somehow can breathe there and I'm walking around and I come across a, a pocket watch or a wrist watch laying on the ground and I pick that thing up, that, that I would never assume that that thing just came to be. Like it would not match with our own reason to think that this thing just happened with all of its uh, mechanical intricacy, with all of its gears and pieces and even the artistic nuances that go into just something so simple as a watch. We would never think that that thing just came to be. The complexity of the thing necessitates a design. More appropriately, it necessitates a designer. And the world, if you can work with me for just a second, the world being infinitely more complex than a pocket watch, right? I mean, our, our, our Earth right now is traveling about 7,000 miles per hour through space. We're spinning at about 700 miles per hour on our axis, which is tilted exactly 23 and a half degrees. So just wrap your mind around, like 24 degrees, no life on Earth. 23 degrees, no life on earth. 23 and a half degrees, perfectly conducive to life on earth. It necessitates a designer. It's so complex that it couldn't have just sprung up on its own because it's far more complicated than a watch. Look, the, the vineyard is exactly like that. The vineyard in this parable is, it exists, it is set apart, it is for a purpose, and that purpose is worthy of being guarded and protected. Jesus is just trying to lay this out, that whatever this vineyard is, it is precious to the one who owns it. It's not random. It's a sovereign design, and then we see that he leased it to tenants. He entrusted it to them to maintain. He entrusted it to them to cultivate, to to guard, to achieve the purpose for which it was designed. Now, now look back at, that was verse 1, so we're going to be okay. Let's go. Well, here's ver- Look back at verse 2 with me. Look back at verse 2. It says, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Here's an important piece to remember. The tenants here, they're not squatters. Like they're not trespassing in the vineyard. They, they, they are there because they have entered into a legally binding agreement with the owner of the vineyard. Uh, our good Reformed Presbyterians will know something about legally binding agreements. We call them covenants. Like we are covenantal people, okay? So they are, the, the tenants here are in a covenant relationship with the owner. This is a covenantal relationship, a relationship that like us, the Jewish people of that day, the, the people and the leaders, they would have readily understood that. They would have understood this is a covenant that's happening. And in this case, the vineyard was theirs to work on the condition, on the condition that the owner receive a portion of the fruit. That's how covenants work. You see, covenants 
always have conditions. A marriage covenant is conditioned, at the most base level of a marriage covenant, is conditioned upon the two people remaining uh, alive. I know that sounds simple, but that's a covenant. Till death do us part is the covenant. So when the season came, he sent the servant to to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay, The, the point is that this would not have been a surprise. The tenants at this point should not be going, oh, what, what's happening? They see him come and they go, yeah, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. We grow the fruit, we produce it, we keep some for ourselves, but we also give it to the owner. And so they see this one coming and, and, and they understand that this is how it would have worked. But instead of fulfilling their covenant obligation, instead of doing their job, instead of being committed to the covenant, instead of rendering unto the owner that which belonged to the owner, they beat up the servant and sent him away empty-handed. And this happens again and again and again. The, the idea there is that this happens repeatedly. And each time, each time the response of the tenants gets amplified just a little bit. Just a little bit. This happened with many others. And then verse 5 says, some they beat and some they killed. Now look back at verse 6. Look at 6. It says he still had one more to send, and this would, this would not be a servant. This would be his son. And not just a son, it would be his beloved son. And, and perhaps for a moment, for a moment, if you were sitting there listening to this parable, for just a moment, perhaps you would have thought or expected that this one, that this beloved son, would have been treated properly. Perhaps the tenants will actually give to the son the rightful share of the harvest. Perhaps they will remember their covenant with the owner. But we know what happens, right? Look at seven. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Okay, so so they recognize who he is. He is the heir. He is the one who will, in the future, receive the vineyard as his property, as his inheritance. And then what's their plot? Look at it. Did you catch it? They want to kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. They fully understand who he is. They fully understand that if he dies, he can't get his inheritance. But there's an assumption being made in their mind too. There's an assumption being made here. We worked through the parable of the two lost sons last week. We talked a lot about inheritance. We were reminded that an inheritance is only to be received if the father has passed away. So the assumption that the tenants are making is that if we kill the son, we get the inheritance because the father must already be dead. In their minds, they've already come to the conclusion that he is gone. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, says, The tenants supposed in seeing the master's son come alone that the master was dead. Therefore, if they killed the son, they would command the property. At this point, at this point, the identities of the items in the parable should be pretty clear. The vineyard is, is Israel. It's God's people. We see that imagery connected with God's people uh, throughout the Old Testament and particularly, particularly in Isaiah 5 where the prophet speaks, or, or more accurately, if you read that, he actually sings this. This is what he says. He says, he dug, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. I mean, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? God's using this same imagery in the Old Testament in Isaiah that Jesus is using there on the steps of the temple. The tenants are the rulers of the people of Israel. 
In Jeremiah 2.21, it says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You see, the rulers have corrupted it. They've taken what was good and they've ruined it. The servants are the prophets. The servants that the master kept sending, they're the prophets who are going to him, coming to the people to speak on behalf of God. That makes the man who planted the vineyard the representation of God the Father. And the son in the parable should be pretty clear at this point too. The beloved son is Jesus Christ himself. You see, this is what... This is what God the Father calls God the Son. He calls him my beloved Son. He says, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He said that at his baptism. He said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That was at his transfiguration. And here in verse 8, fully in view of the teachers of Israel, fully in view of the vineyard of the Lord, Jesus uses that same designation for himself, for the Son in the parable. And what he's doing here isn't really that subtle. Like we might miss it because we're a little bit separated from that, but what he's doing is he's letting them know that he understands what their plans for him are. If you were to look back at Mark eleven eighteen, you will see what the leaders had in mind for Jesus and what the tenants had in mind for the son. See, we're told that after Jesus cleared the temple, after he had embarrassed them and demonstrated authority over him, over them, we're told the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And this is what it says. And they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Those same astonished people are the ones sitting there right now listening to him. They're sitting there listening to him. And those same leaders with the plot to kill him, are listening to. And he knows their plan. He knows the desire of their wicked hearts. And what he is demonstrating in this parable is that their desire is not for the good of the vineyard, but it's actually, it's actually for the position of the Lord. In this parable, Jesus is going after the men who say in their hearts, there is no God. Remember, they thought he was dead. God must be dead. He's sending the Son. So he's saying... These people have forgotten. They believe that if they conquer the Son, they have no need to fear the Father. But Jesus has a question for them. Look at verse 9. He asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And he doesn't wait for a response. He, He doesn't wait. By this point, if I'm one of the religious leaders on the porch with Jesus, I am beyond uncomfortable. I am, I'm at the point of trying to ease out of that scene, honestly. I don't want to be here because I know where this is going. I'm sweating, probably starting to shake a little bit. Jesus gives them the answer. You see, the owner isn't dead. The owner isn't impotent. The owner is not incapable of claiming what is rightfully his. Jesus doesn't always answer his own questions. But in this case, he gives a clear and honestly a terrifying response. He says, this is still verse 9, he says, the owner will come and destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And then he delivers this fatal blow. He hits them. I, I need you to imagine that if your expertise is supposed to be in the word of God, these are the leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, you're supposed to know the Old Testament. Here Jesus lets them know his plan and then what does he use? He uses the Bible. He says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That quote comes from Psalm 118. To add a little more depth to this whole scene for you, Psalm 118 is one of what they call the Hallel songs. These are the, these are the songs that they sang as they went up to Jerusalem for Passover. This would have been the chorus that is resounding in the community. I know we don't walk around singing a whole lot today, and if you do, you probably get looks, but they did. Okay, They used to walk around singing these, and they knew the Bible so well that they didn't need words on the screen to sing the Psalms. Like they just knew it. And so they were singing Psalm 118 during Passover week. They've been singing this. In fact, Psalm 118, the psalm that he just quoted, is the same psalm that they sang during the triumphal entry just one chapter before. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, these same people who are still sitting there listening were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus uses that same psalm right here, that same psalm. By the way, that psalm also says, save us, we pray, O Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Hosanna means, save us, we pray, O Lord. That same song now carries some different weight to it. Rather than being one of joy, rather than being one of triumph, it comes bearing the weight of impending condemnation. His, his point, one of the central reasons for even mentioning this psalm is to make it clear that it is terribly dangerous to remain in opposition to Christ. In Luke's record of this parable, I told you this is a synoptic parable. In Luke's record of this, he adds a further comment from Jesus where he concludes this whole thing by saying, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is not playing nice at this moment. He's playing truthful but he's not playing nice. That same divine stone that the prophet Daniel spoke of will crush. It will shatter. It will turn to chaff. It will turn to dust. All those who stand in opposition to the kingdom of God. This is a perilous position to be in. And then what's their response? We need to see that. Remember, they are standing here in the presence of the rejected stone. They are rejecting him even now with hardened hearts, with darkened minds, and their eyes are blind to reality that the cornerstone that held everything together was also the divine door of access. And so in verse 12, verse 12, we see their response. Far from receiving a view of hope, we are given here a glimpse of the darkness of depravity. It says this, it says, "And, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Here's the emphasis. They understand what is happening. Mark is confirming for us that they felt the tension of that moment. They understood the gravity of the situation. It's like that old Vic Chestnut song, right? The gravity of the situation fell on them like a bit of new knowledge. You see, that's what's happening. It's not that they are confused. It's it's that they finally understand the weight. They finally understand the gravity of the moment. They feel it. Like in their core, they understand that he is speaking against them. It's not that they don't understand the truth. It's that they hate it. 
And this tells us a lot about the reason for this parable to start with. Remember that they were to be the tenants. They were to be the workers of the master's vineyard. They were supposed to shepherd the people of God. God's chosen people. They were supposed to shepherd them into a healthy and fruitful relationship. A fruitful covenant with God. They were to guard the vineyard. They were to protect the vineyard. They were to reap the harvest of the vineyard to the glory of the owner of the vineyard. But they failed in that. They failed in that. Their eyes and their hearts turned from that. And so Jesus took it from them and entrusted the vineyard to others. That's what it says in verse 9. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is the point where you and I enter into this story. Not by way of observation, not by way of sitting there listening, but by way of mobilization. You see, if you are in Christ, if you have, if you have entrusted your life to Jesus, if you have committed your life to him, if you are a disciple of him, you are one of the others of verse 9. You are one of those whom the master has now entrusted his vineyard. This is a poignant reminder for all of us as we engage, especially in this, in what we would call a new gospel work here in this church. You see, I, I, I have to be careful I don't overly correct people all the time when they say, I can't wait to come to your church. Let me, let me just say something. This is not my church. And, and, and just in, in case that isn't clear, this isn't your church either. Like you don't, own this. I don't own this church. I've corrected my son on that countless times. Uh, Daddy, I like going to your church. It's not mine. It's not mine. I know what he means, but it's not mine. I do not own this vineyard. I don't. Neither do you. Rivercrest isn't my church. It isn't your church. This is the Lord's church. Period. End. Full stop. This is Jesus's church. And in the new covenant, it's the church that is the vineyard of God. And so we aren't spectators in this. We aren't here to observe what's happening and think, oh, that's neat. I like the way they did that song or I like the way they dress or I hate the way they dress or I hate the way they did that song. That's not what, we, that's not what this is about. We aren't supposed to be spectators. We're supposed to be tenants. We're supposed to be active players in the story. We're supposed to be workers of the vineyard charged with the task of extending the vineyard, and grafting in as many wild olive shoots as we can for the purpose of growing as much spiritual fruit as we can that we might present it to the master, that we might present it to the Lord for his glory. And in the midst of this season, I am more and more convinced that it's not our charisma It is not our creativity. It is not our conditions that God is looking for. We tend to rest on those things. We tend to rest on our ability, our own ingenuity, our our circumstances in which we find ourselves. We tend to think that if we have the right style, the right sound, and the right sight for the task, by the way, that's Church Planting 101. There's about a thousand books on it, and they all say one thing. Make sure you have the right hip style. Make sure you have the best sound. Make sure you have the best place. And then the last chapter will say something, and make sure you like people. 
Like that's, that's like chapter 12. It's kind of the appendix that probably should go first, right? Make sure we love the vineyard before we start thinking about planting a new one. Because if you don't like gardening, it's probably not a good idea to get into the business. We tend to think that if we have the right style, the right sound, and the right sight for the task, that there, will, that there must be success in that. But that's not what God needs from us. That's not what he asks from us. To build his church, he doesn't need us to be all of those things. He just needs us to be committed to his cause. To his cause. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Are, are we doing his work? And by the way, I'm not asking you to grade me here. I think the tendency is to look at those who stand up front and go, well, are they doing it well? We know we're not doing it well. We're trying to figure this thing out every day as we make our way through this. We know we're not doing it well. I catch every spelling error. I promise you. None of you are a higher critique of of what happens up here than I am. I will sweat myself to sleep tonight going, I can't believe Will was misspelled. That was some kind of German word that we have never used, okay? That will drive me nuts until God goes, why don't you just let go of that junk, son? That's not vineyard work. That's silliness. None of you are going to be tougher on us. So this is not about you critiquing what we do up here. It's about you engaging in the work. It's about you picking up your shovel, you picking up your shears, you doing the work of the vineyard. Are we, here's the question I've wrestled with since, to be honest with you, since Friday afternoon when I totally reset and started over on this thing. Are we doing, are we tending the Lord's vineyard or are we tending our own gardens? And that's been my conviction. Am I more worried about this place than I am God's kingdom? As workers for the king, we have been liberated from the fear of failure. We have been set free from that because we know we can't lose. As Eric just prayed, we hope we don't even get to come back here next week. I hope I never carry another speaker. I hope I never have to set up a a projector with a book on a stool. Y'all, this is about as rigged up as it gets, and that's literally the best that we can do right now, okay? I hope we never have to do that because I hope that the clouds part, that the Son of Man descends in glory and we get taken up and we don't have to deal with school shootings. We don't have to deal with political discord. We don't have to deal with any of that because we know the King's coming back. We have been commissioned as workers of the vineyard to go into this entire world. Just as the kid said, what did God make? He made everything made the entire world. We've been told to go into all the world. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is what he says. You will be. He doesn't ask. He doesn't say, hey, please come. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At, at our former church where we worked, we said that was across the street, across the country, and across the world. Judea is Lexington or Irmo or West Columbia or Chapin. I don't care where you're from. That's where it is. We're supposed to go everywhere. You've been given a message of grace and peace and a mission of reconciliation, of reconciliation and renewal, and a motivation of love and the singular glory of God. In a a world where families are being torn apart every day, 
by selfishness, by sin. In a world where teachers and students are having to hide under a desk so that a madman bent on their destruction can't kill them. In a world where in a world where we see so much brokenness all around us, like turn, actually don't, don't turn on the TV. There's nothing good. How could we do anything than take that message of grace and peace to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our children? How about to our community and to our city? How could we do anything but that when we have the promise of the hope for the future? Surely you realize that, that you have been given the greatest hope in Christ. You you see, he takes all our sin upon himself. He pays our penalty so that we might become righteous in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, right? You see, if anyone is in Christ, we're told he is a new creation, that the old has passed away and that the new has come. You don't live in the same vineyard you used to. Jesus told them, I am the door, and now we've walked into that door, and now we stand in his vineyard and trusted to do that work there. The old has passed away, the new has come, new hopes, new dreams, a new purpose, a new, a new path to walk. By the way, a lot of Christians need some better dreams, man. And the American dream just is not good enough. I'm, I'm sorry. You need to dream bigger than that. The new has come. You've been set free. And so Paul says, we are now ambassadors for Christ. This is what he calls you, by the way. He's not telling this to the elites. He's not telling this to the super smart. If it was for the super smart, I promise you, I would be disqualified. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Did you catch that? How does he make his appeal? Through us. Through us. My prayer for us is that when the beloved son returns, and he will return, he will return, that the empty tomb attests to the fact that he is going to come back. My prayer is that when he returns to claim his inheritance from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, is that he would find faithful tenants in this branch of his church. It's that he would find you and I faithful and his vineyard fruitful. Let's pray together to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that this is not, this is not an easy task. I confess to you that I, I at times don't feel up to it. I am afraid to speak out. I am afraid to take stands. I'm afraid to shepherd my family well because I'm afraid of what the world will think. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for that. God, I pray that you'd forgive all of us our failings, our willingness to hide. God, I pray that you would forgive us for being content with empty chairs. I I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost, for us to see each and every image bearer that you have made as a potential tenant in your vineyard. And I pray that you would give us the voice, give us the heart, 
Give us the motivation. Give us your spirit to welcome them in and maybe even to chase after them and bring them back. God, I pray that you would build your church here, grow your vineyard, not our kingdom, but yours. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.